You are listening to Voice of the Blue, brought to you by the American Police Hall of Fame in Titusville, Florida. The American Police Hall of Fame. We are the keepers of the history of individual law enforcement officers that honors the fallen and supports their families. A training facility that teaches civilians how to be their own first responder that offers free tactical and strategic training for sworn officers. A great place to visit and learn. Go to APHF.org to find out more. Welcome to Voice of the Blue. I am Royce, your host. Thank you for joining me as I bring you an intimate look at the men and women of the law enforcement profession as we hear of their service, their stories, and their lives. And we bring you these stories in order to show you the human face of the police profession to help you all gain a better understanding of those who stand on the blue line. I've got a special guest for you today. He is a U.S. Border Patrol agent and author of the book, Look at the Dirt. And I'm going to bring him on here in just a second to uh, explain to you everything that happens and, well, hopefully everything that happens in the life of a Border Patrol agent and uh, talk about some of the things in the bad press they've gotten recently and what it's like to be down on the borders of America and uh, maintaining law and order. And his name is Paul Eberly. And again, he is the, uh, the uh, I almost, almost call him the host. He is the author of the book, Look at the Dirt. And it's the story of Border Patrol agents through their own lives. And Paul Eberly, thank you for being part of the program today. Welcome, sir. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. The honor is mine. So tell us a little bit about what it's like to be a border patrol agent. What is it like to be a, let's say work a day in the life of a USBP guy? Well, it's uh, like any job It can be pretty routine at times, but uh, it is punctuated by short bursts of vigorous activity and excitement <laughs> and sheer terror in some places, huh? <laughs> Sometimes I, I, I was pretty lucky in my experience. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm obviously you're here talking with us now. That's a good thing. <laughs> well, so obviously you guys aren't the average street cop beat cop. Your, your uh, area of operations and the things that you guys do seems to greatly differ from the average street cop. Tell us how those things differ. If you would, please. Uh, absolutely. Uh, even within the border patrol conditions of work differ greatly. There's some people work in uh, urban environments. Some people work in suburban environments, guys work in deserts and mountains all over the place or up North. Uh, but, uh, all the places that I worked were, uh, were kind of high desert or mountains and then, uh, or what San Diego County calls mountains, uh, east of San Diego <laughs> around Tecate Campo area. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so it, it, it's more rural in that, in that case, I was detailed to some cities such as Nogales or El Centro, where it was more urban, 
but uh, not huge cities, but cities nonetheless. There was a very short window to catch people before they disappeared into the buildings and everything. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, all all weather, you know, rain or shine, we're out there looking at the dirt, uh, standing at checkpoints. Um, some people are uh, mainly doing processing; others are doing secret squirrel stuff, which I didn't really put in this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are plainclothes units that try to blend in and and follow people around and do sneaky stuff. Yeah, because I imagine the sight of a green uniform would probably, you know, make people want to get a little bit furtive and try to circumvent <laughs> you guys and go around another way. Um, yes, yes, it does. So you guys are down there, obviously, enforcing immigration law. And what all is entailed with that? What, do you, what, what are the, the situations you're dealing with and maybe even some of the threats you're dealing with down there on the border? You were, in, you said, uh, Nogales in Arizona? I, I worked in the Tucson sector mm-hmm. and a couple different stations there. I worked in Sonoida, which is uh, it's a, a grassland, mountainy area near the Huachuca Mountains. I worked in uh, the Tucson station, which is kind of, it's not really in Tucson. That's just where the station is. And then we drive down to the border uh, around uh, different spots, like down south, south of Aravaca. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then I also worked in Casa Grande which is a station a hundred miles north of the border. And they work almost exclusively on the Tahan Otham Indian reservation, which is a giant area the size of Connecticut. Wow. And that's, that's our main AO there. Well, how many, I also, go ahead. I'm oh, sorry. Uh, I also worked in San Diego sector, uh, a small station called El Cajon station, which is also off of the border, but you drive down, you, you drive a ways to get there and they work between Takati and Campo. Wow. You guys are under the direction of uh, Department of Homeland Security, correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, My first five years, we were uh, we were the Immigration and Naturalization Service, which is under Department of Justice. And then after 9-11, they, they stood up Department of Homeland Security, and then we became part of them. Yeah, I think I think most federal agencies did around that time, uh, if, my, yes. if my guess is correct. Well... So what are some of the, uh, the daily things that you guys deal with and maybe even some of the threats that you guys have to deal with down there, uh, enforcing immigration law? Well, on a typical day, uh, they, you know, you get your muster briefing, they kind of tell you what the previous shift is working. There could be some groups outstanding and they'll assign people to work those and other guys will be assigned to either a checkpoint or transport or processing and then everyone else just goes down to a geographic area of the border and they just start uh, cutting roads. Usually if nothing happens between you, the time you leave the station and the time you get to your area, you know, the sensors can go off. There could be uh, other agency calls that could take you off of your, uh, you, what you thought you were going to be doing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, if nothing happens, then you just go down to your area. And I always started on the border road and uh, work my way north, just uh, looking at the roads, see if there's any tracks in the roads, uh, listen for sensors, maybe check some of my favorite spots where I maybe scored a big group or some dope before. Mm-hmm. But go. As far as threats go, there's several different kinds of threats, human, uh, animal, environmental. Uh, obviously, in the desert, it's hot most of the time. So you have to drink plenty of water. No drinking on a school night. It's really bad news, even if you're a young guy, to have alcohol the night before you're going to be down in the desert because mm-hmm. uh, you can't come back from that uh and hydrate yourself so constantly hydrating uh, then you have to worry about you know animals snakes and spiders and stuff 
get you. Uh, I had a problem in San Diego with poison oak. <laughs> that was a mess. I, I did not react well to that. Well, but, uh, poison oak, and, and they don't; those trees don't really bite you. So you had to make uh, make personal contact with that thing. Apparently, yes, I, I made personal contact with almost everything you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, I bet. What <laughs> All other the time? What other kind of critters besides snakes and you know uh, poison oak and spiders and stuff like that? What other kind of uh, is a four legged kind too? Oh, certainly. I, I devoted a whole chapter in the book to uh, animal encounters. <laughs> oh, because I haven't got that far yet. I just started reading it, actually, and I'm kind of ashamed of myself for not finishing it up before we had this uh, this conversation. But, well, good. I'm looking forward to reading that, and I think everybody else should read that, too, and and, uh, and see what you guys are dealing with. You're not just dealing with the two-legged threats. You're dealing with four-legged and slithering threats, too, man. That's, uh, that's, a, right. that's a lot. The human threats are the last thing I'll mention for a reason, because... Uh, most of, I, I have to say, mo- for most of my career, uh, most of the uh, illegal aliens we've encountered are regular people. Yeah, you know, I've heard that to too. Get a better, I mean, it's a cliche. They're looking for a better life, and they are. That doesn't make it okay, but right, you know, in their position, you know, you put on your empathy pants, uh, you might be doing the very same thing. Oh uh, yes, I certainly don't don't hold it against them. I don't either. I have no problem with anybody coming into this country legally, um, but we, we have to have laws and we have to enforce them. Unfortunately, uh, it'd be great if we could right. just open up the doors and bring everybody in and put them all to work, but it just doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Sure. If we had the same immigration, if we enforced our immigration laws like some countries, we uh, we might not have a problem. Uh, well, <laughs> we'll just leave that right there for another podcast. <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> Uh, so you you mentioned dehydration, and that is certainly an issue um, for anybody anywhere if they're not prepared. But you guys are in extremely dry, hot places sometimes. How much water are you guys taking with you while you're out there on the line? Um, well, to just to go south into the field, I keep a case of water in my vehicle. So there's that's up to you know six gallons just for the aliens. And oh, then, okay. Uh, Every transport unit will also have water. Every everyone's got water, plenty of water. And then for myself, I would have two gallons plus a hundred ounce bladder in my Camelback with ice with ice in there, and maybe some liquid IV or uh, squenchers, mm-hmm. uh, also for some electrolytes. But I'm constantly drinking water. I constantly. could imagine you so. Can't, you can't drink enough water to keep up. If if you get out of your vehicle and you and you go on a walk you know, three, four, five, six hours. Yeah. You're going to need a resupply. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> Hopefully you can meet up with someone. <laughs> well, something very telling stood out when you were talking about carrying water that you mentioned that you, you purposely carry water for these people who are entering our country illegally. And that kind of flies in the face of uh, some particular narratives that have tried to decry you guys down there for, uh, even recent incidents, there was one where there were agents on horseback and they had the long reins and uh, apparently those are used to control the horses. Correct me if I'm wrong. And oh, people, yes. people snapped some photographs, which later got picked up and used to eviscerate the U.S. Border Patrol agents down there. Is that something you can elaborate on? Uh, I can. Uh, absolutely. I'm not a horse guy. I was always on ATVs, if anything else, mm-hmm. other than a vehicle. But uh, the, I immediately called up some horse patrol agents I knew, and they quickly educated me that uh, 
the twirling of the reins, it keeps the horse from going in the direction of where you're twirling the reins. So in the video that I saw, it looked like he was twirling the reins at, at the, the aliens, but he was keeping the horse from running over the aliens. Right. He's just keeping, he's controlling the horse with those reins. They don't like the noise that that twirling makes and oh. that keeps them away. And that's how it was explained to me. Well, that puts things in a whole different light than the version we got from the national media. I mean, you oh. guys were just a bunch of abusive greenbacks down there doing terrible things to these immigrants and, and made y'all look like, uh, you know, just a bunch of abusers behind the badge or something. And that, um, I kind of wish people would not go off half cocked like that with stories without getting both sides of the issue instead of going from a photograph like that. Did that sure. have any kind of ripple through the, the, through the agency? Did that affect anybody emotionally or affect their morale in any way? Well, speaking for myself, that's when I put in my papers. Really? That, oh my that word. Was beyond the pale. That was beyond the pale. Um, there was already some other things going on that I wasn't real happy about, but I could have fought through it. But when, uh, when my own president got on TV and accused people of strapping or whipping, aliens that was just too much uh, i can imagine they hadn't even hardly begun an investigation but i i knew from the photos if they were hitting him with those reins i'm not a horse guy but i've seen those and felt those reins that that would have the effects of that would have been instantaneous and observable on film uh they obviously they weren't hitting the aliens with the reins so i knew something was wrong there and then with the immediate pile on from media personalities you could just you know, after watching the news for my adult life, I, I knew something was wrong there. Yeah. And it may not have been entirely truthful what they were saying. Well, sadly, a lie can make it around the world twice before the truth gets its shoes on to get in the race. Um, exactly. and, and the false narratives linger long after they've been rebutted and people still believe the false narrative, even though there's plenty of rebuttal out there against what, you know, what was seen on camera or TV, or even in a, a still photograph as was the case here. So, uh, sure. yeah, well, I'm very sorry to hear that, uh, but you have had a long, in spite of that, you've had a very long and, uh, and, uh, I'm imagining colorful career of service there on the U S border patrol. Yes, I was, I was blessed. Every station I was at was a great station with supportive management. I, I never had the kinds of problems that you read about in some news reports or mm -hmm. that some of the, the union officials talk about. It was always straight up that if you were straight up with them, they were straight up with you. And at the station level, everything was as good as it could have been. I'm sure there were some improvements that could have been made, but, uh, you know, the border patrol knows how to patrol the border. The The problems aren't with the stations. The problems are not mm -hmm. with the agents. And, uh, I, I make that point in the book once or twice that, uh, the problems are with, uh, you know, those above you. officials. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's usually the case though. As I see things, it seems to be that yeah. way. Well, I haven't heard any different from any, uh, real police I've talked to. <laughs> no, I, I bet. But I, I can imagine it felt like you were working against the tide often when after those kind of things started surfacing uh, uh, that and, and dealing with a seemingly endless stream of people trying to come into this country. Um, did you ever feel like you were pushing a rock up the hill? Uh, every day, <laughs> but it was fun. <laughs> and, and yet there you were. I, I appreciate I, I your dedication, to, brother. <laughs> I have to admit that, that the job is, uh, it's, it's a great job. If you like being outside, if you like being physical, if, uh, it is a paramilitary organization. So there's that, but, uh, 
I found it much more enjoyable than I found the military. And, uh, we, we had a great time with each other. I had good, good, uh, good companions on the job. And that's what the book's all about is what, what great people I worked with. And I admire them greatly. Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, several of my friends that have been in different, you know, various law enforcement capacities have talked about how, uh, they couldn't stand going to work, going to work because of some of the people they worked around, and so that's a good thing. You had a bunch of good folks around you, and they all understood each other. It usually is the case that the people out there actually doing all the work are the ones that really formulate all the tactics and make things work and figure out how to make things work once they're tasked with the job, no matter how big and bad it may be. Am I uh, seeing that correctly? Absolutely. Uh, the, one of the first things you hear in the academy is you will not solve the immigration problem. Mm. You know, here's here's your job. Here's how to do it. Go do it. And if you can't handle it, find another one. And uh, we we took that to heart and uh, did the best we could. You know, clearly we did not solve the immigration pro- problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but just a hypothetical question: Where do you think this uh, that the immigration problem would be without the U.S. Border Patrol down there doing what they do? It would be slightly worse than it is right now. Slightly worse? <laughs> just, <laughs> just slightly running worse. across <laughs> un, unopposed, pretty much. I mean, yeah. the, the burden is falling on county county sheriffs. Um, they're is responding. It? Local local departments are responding. They're calling the Border Patrol, and the Border Patrol has no one to send because they're busy doing other things. Now, this isn't the case in every station. State each One station could be much different from the next. My old station in Casa Grande, they're, they're actually down there making cases and, and, and catching people. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the assistant U S attorney is the one that determines who gets prosecuted and who doesn't. And, uh, you know, that's, that's where a lot of the issues arise, but you know, they're trying to push back. Well, let me ask you this, another hypothetical. If you were the guy at the top who was making the decisions and giving the directives to the U S border patrol, would it be a safe bet that you probably have some ideas that would actually work better than what's happening right now? I would have some thoughts. Definitely. I would yeah. have some thoughts to share, but I, I have to, and again, I'm not, I was never a policymaker. I was never an office guy. I was one step above ground level. The most I got to be was a first line supervisor. So they have problems that I'm not aware of yeah, I, I, from the ground level. Uh, I definitely have my opinions, but, uh, what what's happening right now is not working. And it is another point I make in the book and I have not made in interviews is the border patrol is not necessarily in control of its destiny. The border patrol is under customs and border protection, which is under department of Homeland security, which is under the, the executive branch. Mm-hmm. So the chief of the border patrol has slightly more to say about immigration policy than your average Joe. Uh, He's appointed, but he's not, uh, he's executing policy. He's not making it. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you had more than one scary incident throughout your illustrious career, my friend. Uh, but maybe with, <laughs> tell us about maybe one or two that just actually stand out there to you. Um, uh, it is in the book. Uh, one, one instance, uh, me and a partner were, just, we were sitting on an X, and for those of you that don't know, an X is a Border Patrol speak for a stationary position where you are there to deter. Mm-hmm. And you basically just park somewhere with the engine running and look around and let the aliens see you, and hopefully they go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. If they cross, then you respond. And uh, we were at the port of entry in Takati, 
California. It's a very tiny town. And then Takati, uh, Baja, California is a very large town on the south side. And uh, we were just observing the traffic at the port of entry. People coming north, waiting in line, being inspected. And then uh, all of a sudden, three vehicles came up the southbound lanes. So that's that's a huge problem. Oh, Even yeah. Before 9-11, that was a huge problem. It was a runner from the port. And uh, I happened to be eating a giant salad at the time, which <laughs> didn't make me look like John Wick. But uh, <laughs> I uh, spilled that all over the place and moved my vehicle into their path. They actually went around the road and through a parking lot I was parked in. The first vehicle got by me. And then I stopped the second vehicle. And then while that was happening, the third vehicle was going up uh, through where the customs officers were. Mm-hmm. So one vehicle got by me, the other vehicle, I, st- I, I interposed myself and I got out, leaving the shotgun in the rack and was going to ask him, what do, you, what do you think you're doing? And then I saw the rifle uh, that was leaning on the seat there next to him it was an M16 or an AR-15 later, I, I found. But to me, it looked like an M16 loaded 30 round mag in it and i grabbed the guy and was pulling him out the door telling him give me your hands give me your hands and he's wearing a uh like a fanny pack type thing and his his left hand is up but his right hand is unzipping the fanny pack Uh oh Oh, (laughs) i was like don't do it give me your hands and then i remembered to speak spanish and told him to give me his hands in spanish and right as next thing i knew i'm looking through my sights at the back of his head. And I was going to do a contact shot on the back of his head. I, I had already made up my mind that this guy was going to die. Cause I wasn't gonna, and, uh, you know, in the book, I describe all the physiological responses that happen at that time under stress. Mm-hmm. And right as the hammer was about to drop, he gave me his hands and then we, I holstered up and arrested him, looked up. There's, I was surrounded by customs agents that all had their glocks drawn in a semicircle. They, it would have been a mess. If there was a round fired, it would have been a complete mess. But mm. uh, the guy ended up being compliant. We arrested him. He was a uh, he was a state police officer in Baja, California. He was he had a Browning high power in that fanny pack and a rock of meth. My goodness. To the, and he had no idea. He had no idea how close he came to uh, meeting his maker that day. Sure. I, I, I believe I believe it dawned on him. <laughs> because he did become compliant but uh there was a lot of people around it was not a good situation i totally got tunnel vision auditory exclusion everything oh, yeah. you could think of happened to me at that time mm-hmm. i could see the hammer going back and uh yeah, that my decision was made and i'm sure it only happened in a second but a whole oh. lot goes through your mind when it's when you're dialed in that tight and uh i'm, I'm glad i didn't have to shoot him well, I bet he is too. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. They they had no uh, they had no good intent. Uh, they were chasing a United States citizen. The United States citizen. They the police officers. There was the other police officer had a submachine gun, and he just walked right up to the to the customs agents. Like what? What's what's your problem? But anyway, these two uh, state police officers from Baja, California, were chasing a United States citizen into the United States because they alleged that he abused a young girl. The, U- the U.S. citizen had no record, mm-hmm. couldn't find anything on him. But those guys each had an identically packaged rock of meth uh, next to their duty handguns in their in their uh, on their person at the time. So, wow. Take from that what you will. But uh that U S citizen, if they would have got him in Mexico, I suffice it to say, he would have had a really bad day. Mm. 
Well, you saved two lives that day. Well, that's, besides that's your own, make it three, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. Well, let my me, partner ended up getting the other guy, and, and it was a happy ending. Well, good. Thank God for happy endings. But there's been enough bad ones, <laughs> when it, you know, involving police officers and not coming home, and and their end of watch happening just in the split second, just like you know that same decision you had to make there. So, uh, thank sure. God that ended well. Well, uh, what would you like the average American citizen to know the, about your profession that you feel they just don't understand? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure people understand just how many people are coming in. Even, even in better years, there was a ton of people coming in. Mm-hmm. And at our best, we don't even catch half of them. That I'm not going to cite statistics. I'm not a statistics guy. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you as a dirt level agent that we don't even catch half of them on a good day. Wow. And these are not good days. The the number of child molesters coming through is astronomical. I we we were not running into that. I mean, if you got a child molester or a murderer or a robber in most of the rural stations I was at, you know, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, that, that was that was a good case. Mm-hmm. Now there's a ton of them. It's like they're everywhere. And I don't know if that's because of reporting improvements or how we keep records, but it's it's amazing to me. And, and the child molesters, that is the one thing that really stands out to me, how many of them there are. And, mm. and with the whole uh, children coming across and family units and fake families, it's just really dark and grim to think about too much. But uh, wow. you, you need the Border Patrol out there. You need You need them to be doing their job. Yes, sir. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Not, not that I ever thought otherwise, but that certainly drove it home a lot deeper for me right there. Um, well, you know, I'd love to ask you question after question, but I think most of the answers to all of my questions are already in your book. How do people get a copy of Look at the Dirt by Paul Eberly? It is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or from, I even have an Amazon link on my website, lookatthedirt.com. Okay. Uh, you can get it in paperback or Kindle form. Very nice. Well, I happen to have an, uh, an autographed copy by the author who has said some very nice things about me in the acknowledgments. And I really appreciate that, Paul. <laughs> You've been a big well, fan of my you. other podcasts for years. And uh, so uh, it was very, uh, quite a blessing to receive that in the mail. I wasn't expecting it at all. I was like, oh, this is nice. I'll be reading the, the, uh, another book I need to dive in here. So, all right. <laughs> So many books, so little time. Uh, that is true because I love to read. I'm a voracious reader. So, as am I. Uh, well, Paul, thank you so much for your service in the U.S. Border Patrol. And uh, if you would, would you join me for a prayer for those who are still standing on that thin line? I will. Lord God Almighty, in the name of your Son Jesus, we ask you to protect those who stand on the blue line. Let not this day be their end of watch, and may you watch over them as they watch over us. And keep your guiding hand upon them and bring them all home safely to their families. Amen. Paul Eberly, it's been great uh, having you on the program. Thank you for joining us all the way from Arizona. And uh, looking forward to having you back on the program again soon. Thank you, Royce. All right. On behalf of the American Police Hall of Fame, myself and the producer, we thank you for joining us on this episode of Voice of the Blue. God bless you all.